Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. begin our morning by talking about Mr. Nudick's first name, Herman. That's right, we're talking about hermeneutics. That's right. We need to talk about hermeneutics in order to really look closely at the end of chapter 4 of Paul's letter to the Galatians. Because Paul does implement allegory, and all too often, Paul's use of allegory becomes an excuse for people to allegorize the Bible rather wildly. So we have to talk a little bit about the difference between modern concepts of allegory versus the way that Paul is utilizing the concept 
of allegoreo, or allegory. Now, a minute ago, I used the word hermeneutics. The word hermeneutics comes down to us actually from the god Hermes. There is a hint of it in the book of Acts where you see Paul and Barnabas as they've been shipwrecked and they end up on the Isle of Malta. And then Paul is bitten by a snake and the locals expect him to die. He doesn't die. And instead he ends up doing miracles. And so the locals begin worshiping Paul and Barnabas and refer to Barnabas as Zeus and refer to Paul as Hermes because he's the one that did the talking. And so that concept of Hermes as the interpreter of the gods is the basis for our word hermeneutics. Hermes is also sometimes known as Mercury, but we're talking about the same god, the one who speaks and interprets on behalf of the gods, which is where we get the concept of hermeneutics. Now, hermeneutics, what is it? It is the science, some people would say the art of interpretation. And you engage in hermeneutics all day, every day, whether you know it or not. Because any time that you read anything or any time anybody speaks to you, you do a certain amount of deciding what it is that that person or that article or that poem or that stop sign, you have to decide what does it mean. Does it actually mean stop? Or does it mean just slightly slow down? You have to decide that. And then you and the cop may have a difference of opinion because you may have different hermeneutics. Oftentimes when talking about hermeneutics, I break out a bit of poetry. And then we all talk about what does this poem mean? Because that introduces you to the concept of hermeneutics. Everybody who reads the Bible, I mean everybody who reads the Bible, automatically engages in some degree of hermeneutics. They understand it a certain way. A certain methodology kicks in in your brain, and you read the Bible with that hermeneutic in mind. So over the years, there have been several of these hermeneutic methods that have been put forward by scholars and theologians and writers and church fathers. As you see the development of the church over the last 2,000 years, you see several different methodologies for hermeneutics that have been developed. If I say the word medieval, do you know what period of time I'm talking about? I'm talking roughly from the 5th to the 15th century. That's also sometimes known as the, the Middle Ages. During that period of time, there were four primary hermeneutical methods that developed. For a while, during the medieval period, every text of the Bible was interpreted with what they called the fourfold mode or the fourfold method. And they would emphasize, this fourfold method would emphasize the difference between what the Bible says, which they would refer to as the letter of the text, and then what the spirit of the text is. Not just what does it say, but then what does it mean? Now, the fourfold stages that were developed hermeneutically during the Middle Ages. First off, there was the literal sense, which understands the text based on what the text actually says or reports directly. That's the literal sense. But that was not good enough. They were not willing to just stand on, this is what the Bible says. They would also then imply three other methodologies to the text, the first of them being... <coughs> the allegorical sense, which explains away the text so that the text doesn't necessarily mean what it says the way that the literal elements of the text might be read. 
but instead it believes that the text has a symbolic meaning and that you have to understand the text allegorically to really get to the depth of what the Bible is trying to tell you. Allegories still exist to this day. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the allegorical sense, which you need to understand, explains the text of the Bible in a way where each literal element has a symbolic meaning. Then they would apply what is called the moral application, which understands the text according to how it applies to and is understood by the individual reader or interpreter. This also happens a lot in the church. You know, what does this mean to you? How does this apply to you? Jesus wept. Have you ever felt like weeping? There's a lot of that kind of preaching going around. Well, that is the moral application of the text of the Bible. And then finally, in this fourfold methodology, was the analogical sense, which draws out of the text the implied but not plainly stated allusions that the text contains in some sort of secret metaphysical or eschatological mode of gnosis, of knowledge. And so that was the analogical sense. Just today, I saw an article that said that we need to expand this fourfold method in the modern context because everybody who's reading the Bible these days, uh, they're so busy being narcissistic that on top of exegesis, which means pulling meaning out of the text, or eisegesis, which means pushing meaning into the text, that we also have to have a new name for the new modern methodology, narcissus, which means as you read the Bible, you think it's all about you. As you read the text, you think about how it applies to you, how it feels to you, how you react to it. And then you start thinking, you know, I'm probably the one walking on the water, even though it's, you know, it's about Peter. It's probably me walking on the water. And it certainly has to mean something to me. Well, anyways, from the 5th century to the 15th century, those were the standard Christian interpretive methods. And then the Protestant Reformation came around. And the Protestant Reformation ushered in a renewed interest in the interpretation of the Bible that stepped away from interpretive traditions that were developed during the Middle Ages and returned to a concentration on the text itself. Martin Luther and John Calvin both emphasized the Latin phrase scriptura sui ipsius interpris, which means the writing is its own interpreter. In English, we would just say the text means what it says. So, that became the basis for concepts like sola scriptura. Do you know sola scriptura? There are five solas that came out of the Protestant Reformation. Sola scriptura, which means the Bible alone, that the Bible alone, the word of God alone, can be applied to your conscience and become the rule and standard for your Christian thinking and Christian life. The other four solas were sola gratia, which means by grace alone, through faith alone, sola fide, through Christ alone, sola Christus, to the glory of God alone, sola Deo gloria, soli Deo gloria. Okay, so the Protestant Reformation tried to bring people out of that allegorical thinking and the moral applications and the analogical sense and got back to, but what does the text actually say? Let's start there. That led to what is known as the historical critical method of reading the Bible. Am I boring anybody yet? No. I know this is very luxury, but the historical critical method emerged in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And it focuses on understanding the biblical text by considering its historical and cultural context. It involves analyzing the authorship, the historical background, the literary genre, 
the socio-cultural setting of the biblical text. And this method aims to uncover the original meaning of the text by examining the linguistic and historical and cultural factors that influenced the composition of the text in the first place. We engage in a certain amount of that here at GCA. But that was not enough to get rid of the allegorical method. The allegorical method managed to keep itself alive through the Protestant Reformation. And modern allegorical method is very, very different than the Greek method that Paul was utilizing here in chapter 4 of the book of Galatians. The allegorical method in its modern sense emphasizes symbolic and metaphorical interpretations of the biblical text. And even though it was popularized by early Christian theologians like Origen, and then Augustine adopted the allegorical method in books like The City of God, leading to things like amillennialism, when you're talking about eschatology. In other words, the text doesn't mean what it says, it has some deeper meaning, and you have to pull that deeper meaning out of the text in order to understand what it's really getting at. Whereas the literal, genuine, face value meaning of the text is secondary. That doesn't matter as much as what you can pull out of the text in a spiritualized manner. That's modern allegory. If you want to see it in practice, Turn on TBN any day of the week, and you'll see people make passing reference to biblical texts and then just go on wildly making up stuff. According to the allegorical approach, the biblical narratives are all seen as allegories that contain hidden spiritual or moral truths, and that method involves looking for deeper spiritual meaning beneath the surface narrative, and it often utilizes symbolic or typological associations in order to get to this deeper meaning. So the meaning of the text as you read it is secondary to whatever you can pull out of it in a spiritual sense. Now, my problem with the modern allegorical approach to the Bible is that there are no rules. And so the meaning of the text changes according to the allegorist. Depending on which allegorist you're listening to, the very same text can mean a wide variety of things because what it says is not primarily what it means. It means something deeper that we have to go find. Okay, now another approach that grew out of the Protestant Reformation that is very alive today is what's called the literary critical method. The literary critical method focuses on the literary aspects of the Bible, such as its structure, its style, its narrative techniques, and it examines the text as a work of literature. So it explores the themes, the motifs, the rhetorical devices, and this method considers the literary genre and the form of the text and seeks to understand how the author's literary choices contribute to the meaning and the message of the biblical text. When I was in high school, you could still take a Bible to school. That's how long ago I was in high school. But there was actually a class that was offered during my senior year that was called Bible as Literature. And that's what they were doing was utilizing this literary critical method. The class didn't get into biblical theology. It got into the literary style and mode and method of the Bible as a piece of literature. And then finally, one of the most popular methods today, I made an allusion to it earlier when I said, Jesus wept. Have you ever felt like weeping? That actually is a method that is utilized widely when interpreting the Bible. It's called the reader response method. The reader response method places emphasis on the role of the reader in the interpretive process. 
And it recognizes that readers bring their own perspectives, their own experiences, and their own cultural context into the reading of the text. And that influences their understanding and their interpretation of the text. This method suggests that meaning is not solely determined by the original author or by the text itself, but it also emerges, meaning emerges from the interaction between the reader and the text. It encourages readers to engage actively with the text and consider their own subjective responses as a valid interpretive tool. I went one time to a quote-unquote Bible study where the folks sat in a circle. I'm not making fun of their geometry. But they, they sat in a circle and would read a text and then go around the circle and talk about what that text meant to them. And each individual would say what that text means to them. And unfortunately, there was nobody in that circle who was willing to talk about what the text actually said and meant based on what it said. Instead, it was all, well, how does this make you feel? How do you respond to it? What emotions does this bring up for you? How do you feel about it? Well, that's the reader response method in practice. Now, all of those methodologies really come down to one of two categories. You're either reading the Bible literally for what it says, and you start with the assumption that it means what it says and says what it means, or you're going to apply some kind of spiritual or mystical or emotional approach to the Bible. Here at GCA, I apply what is called the literal method. I refer to it as the face value method because when we say literal method, the critics of the literal method will say things like, well, if you're reading the Bible literally, then when Jesus said he was a door, you have to assume he's a piece of wood with a handle on each side because that's literal. And so they try to castigate the literal method by saying you can't read the Bible literally. It's full of symbols, so you can't read it literally. So I use the phrase the face value method, and what that means is I understand the Bible for what it says and that I actually understand parts of speech. So when I see a metaphor, I know it's a metaphor. When I see a simile, like I am the door, I understand that's a simile. Is there anybody who didn't understand that when Jesus said, I'm the door to the sheep? Is there anybody who misunderstood what he was saying? No, because we understand parts of speech. We were raised with stuff like that. Well, that's how I understand and read the Bible. I do not <coughs> adhere to what some people call wooden literalism. But I do assume that words mean things and that God used these particular words because these particular words have the meaning he was attempting to convey. A basic rule that I live by is if God had meant something else than what he said, he would have said something else. He would have used other words that had the meaning that he was attempting to convey. But if you begin with the premise that the Bible says things, but it doesn't mean what it says, then you have no way of knowing what it means. Because apparently God meant something else than what he said. So how are we going to know what that other thing is? No, the only way to approach the Bible and let the Bible make any sense is to actually read it for what it says, understand parts of speech as you see them, and then assume that God is an intelligent communicator who is able to use language in order to say what he actually means to say. Is that too complicated? No, okay. For me, consistency matters. That's the way I approach the Bible. Uh, that face value hermeneutic is the method that I use all the way through the Bible. It doesn't matter what the topic is. It doesn't matter if we're talking prophecy. It doesn't matter if we're talking about 
historical events and facts, doesn't matter if we're talking about eschatology, I always apply that face value hermeneutic to the Bible, and I assume that it's saying exactly what it means to say. Okay, now, Paul used an allegory, and he even says these things are an allegory. Allegoreo. There's no way around it. So, does the fact that Paul constructs an allegory in Galatians 4, does that then give Shane the fishing license to go back into any part of the Bible that he wants and randomly create allegories according to his own imagination? Does that work? Nope. No. Can anybody think of any difference between the Apostle Paul and Shane? <laughs> Yeah, the Apostle Paul was operating by the command of Christ himself through the Holy Spirit in writing down and developing and understanding the theology on which the church has been built ever since its inception. Shane, not so much. So I don't believe that Paul's use of allegory gives us the right to start allegorizing the Bible. Rather, with a face value reading, we read that Paul wrote an allegory and we admit it. And we say, yes, Paul created an allegory here. But here's the big difference between Pauline Greek allegoreo and modern concepts of allegory. Modern concepts of allegory dismiss the actual factual historical meaning in favor of that deeper meaning that they dig out of the text. Paul doesn't do that. Paul admits that all the facts that he refers to actually happened. These are historic facts. This actually occurred. And then what he sees in the text is not some unique hidden knowledge. Instead, what he pulls out of the story of Abram and Hagar and is simply a corresponding demonstration of the same theology that he's been preaching the whole time. He's using his allegory as a support for what he has already said about salvation by grace through faith. In other words, he didn't start allegorizing to come up with something new and unique, which is the way so many allegorists work in the modern world. Instead, what he's doing is saying, look, God has always worked this way. This is the way salvation has always been. And even this story from the book of Genesis supports that kind of thinking. And that's all he's doing. He's not denying the historicity of the text. And he's using the facts of the text in order to say, this theology that I have already taught you is supported by the ancient texts. That is the Greek version of allegoreo. It is comparing one thing to another, not for the purpose of finding some Gnostic thing that nobody's ever seen before, but for the purpose of saying, this compared to that produces this. And it's consistent with itself. For instance, last week, we read the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and the story of the promised child versus the child of the slave woman. And it perfectly supports the Pauline theology of salvation by grace through faith <coughs> rather than works. But that concept of salvation by grace through faith versus works starts all the way back with Adam and Eve. I mean, if you read the story of Adam and Eve, it's real easy to say, well, look at the theology that is plainly being preached here. Okay, so Eve eats of the tree that she's told not to eat. Oh, she gives it to Adam. He eats also. Their eyes are opened. They realize that they are naked for the first time. They understand their own sinfulness, and they run away from God. And when they hear God walking in the cool of the evening in the garden, they hide themselves from God. 
and they get busy with their own works, sewing up fig leaves to put clothes on themselves to solve their nakedness and sin problem. And God shows up, says, where are you, Adam? Adam says, well, we heard you walking in the garden, and uh, we're naked. And so we hid, and God says, who told you you were naked? As if God is getting information from Adam. He's just getting Adam to admit what he's already done. And then God does not look at the fig leaves and say, oh, good, you solved your problem. Instead, what he does is he kills an animal and he makes skins for them to cover themselves with. In other words, there had to be a substitutionary sacrifice in order to cover their sins. Wow, that theology seems to correspond perfectly with everything the New Testament says. In other words, I just constructed an allegoreo according to the Greek methodology. I didn't deny the facts. The facts exist. That's everything Adam and Eve did. But the facts also preach a theology that is consistent with the whole rest of the Bible, and I didn't have to make up anything. All I had to do was apply what I knew of New Testament salvation and apply that to the Old Testament circumstances. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. You see the difference between Paul's allegory and modern allegory? Because Paul didn't come up with anything new. He just supported what was already taught to him through the scripture by Christ. He used the facts in order to demonstrate the reality of the theology that he was preaching to the Galatians. Now, why is that all important? I'm still introducing, by the way. Okay, so why is that all important? Well, because the Galatians had already been saved by the preaching of Christ, through faith in Christ. They had already received the Holy Spirit. They were already redeemed by God in the finished work of Christ. And then the Judaizers came along and said, you have to be circumcised and you have to do some works. You have to follow the law to some degree. Paul has been arguing that that is a huge difference, that you cannot be saved by Christ and by the law. You're either going to stand before God and plead your justification based on the finished work of Christ or on your law-keeping. And in a moment, he's going to say, and if you seek to be justified by the law, Christ is no help to you. Okay, so if you're going to go ask God to judge you on the basis of the law, you don't get to claim, you don't get to plead the finished work of Christ. And he says, you're fallen from grace. Oh, perfect. Christ is no help to you, and you get no grace. And God's going to judge you on the basis of your performance. How's that going to go for you? Not particularly good. So Paul has drawn this huge contrast between salvation by grace through faith versus the works of your flesh. And that is what he is supporting and demonstrating by the allegory, is that that theology has always been the fact. Got it? Got it. Let's go to the text. Let's go to the text. Galatians 4, starting at verse 21. A question that I love to ask, because Paul puts it right up before his allegoreo, and he says... Okay, so you want to be justified by the law. All of you who are thinking about getting circumcised, all of you who are thinking about keeping some parts of the law, all of you who are really attempting to keep Sabbath to get justified, all of you who are doing all the tithing that the law constructs because you think that's going to justify you, all of you who think that in some way you're going to stand before God and plead your cause, even though Jesus himself said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into the kingdom on that day. I tell you, some are going to say, and then they're going to plead their works. Have we not done these things? Have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons? Haven't we done stuff? And Christ said, 
on that day, I'm going to say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Because if you know Christ and Christ knows you, you can't stand before Christ and try to be justified on the basis of your works. Because Paul already told you, Christ is no help, grace is no help. And so tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Have you not read the law? Now that by itself is a really good question. Have you never looked at the law closely? Have you never read the law? Do you know how difficult it is, how impossible it is to be justified by the law? But I think contextually, the reason Paul has asked this question is he's about to reach back to Moses, to the Pentateuch, to the book of Genesis. He's going to demonstrate that even within the law of Moses, this theology of salvation by grace through faith is embedded right there in the facts. And he's going to pull that out in order to demonstrate that even the law admits that you can only be saved by grace through faith. And that once that is your mode of salvation, you need to throw everything else out. You got to give up on yourself. You need to quit listening to anybody who's trying to bind you. The Judaizers who are coming and telling you what you need to do. You need to just throw them out. Paul is pretty, I was going to say, cutting in his remarks about them. Because in a moment, he's even going to say, I, those that want to cut on you, I wish they'd just be cut off. I wish they'd just cut themselves off. I, I mean, Paul is using harsh language on these people who would bring legalism to already saved, already redeemed, spirit-filled Christian people. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. One by the bondwoman, one by the free woman. You should know this story by now. We looked at it last week, so I won't go back and read it again today. But the details are right here. He's laying out the details. He's laying out the facts. He's not denying any of the facts. He's saying this actually happened. This actually did occur. Abraham was childless. Sarah was barren. And so Sarah said, why don't you go into the tent with my handmaid Hagar if you produce a child through her, she will bear the child on my knees. That way it will be considered a child of our family. And then once Hagar got pregnant, had the child, Abraham loved Ishmael, his son, and that caused tension between the two women. And the tension was real. And so finally Sarah comes to her husband and says you got to get rid of the two of them. And that causes all kinds of dismay for Abraham. He goes to God, and God says, listen to your wife. Whatever she says, do it. And he ends up having to send the bondwoman and her son away. Paul doesn't deny any of those facts. Those are genuine, literal, historic things that happened. And then it was written down. For it's written that Abraham had two sons. One was by the bondwoman, by Hagar, and one child was by the free woman, his own wife, Sarah. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. That's accurate. He's changed none of the details. Abraham actually, in his 20 years of waiting for God to produce this promised child, he and his wife decide, you know, it's been a long time. Maybe you should do this yourself. Go in with Hagar. She's still capable of bearing children. Go in and impregnate her, and then we will have accomplished in our flesh what God promised us. So God gave us a promise, but we're going to accomplish it. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son of the free woman through the promise, because God made a promise that Abraham and Sarah 
were going to have a child, and it was through that child that his descendants were going to be called. And after 20 years of waiting, that finally happened. After both Abraham and Sarah were too old to be producing children, after Sarah's womb was completely barren, that's when God produced a child inside Sarah. So that didn't happen in the flesh. That didn't happen biologically. That happened because God promised it, and nothing's too hard for God. So Paul draws that contrast. One child was the work of the flesh. One child was the result of God's promise. Now this is, he says, allegorically speaking, because these two women represent two covenants. One is the covenant of law from Moses at Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. Hagar was a slave. And because she was a slave, any children she had were slaves. Paul now pounces on that and says, she was a slave, therefore her children are slaves, and she is representative of Mount Sinai and the law of Moses, and everybody that is born into that is also a slave because their mother was a slave. So if you're born by the law, you're a slave to the law because the law is your mother. This is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. And she corresponds to the present Jerusalem. When Paul used the word present, he's talking about 2,000 years ago. Jerusalem still stood as he was writing this. And he was saying present Jerusalem where Moses is still being preached every Sabbath. Present Jerusalem, where the leaders of Jerusalem, the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests there, are all preaching the Old Testament, all preaching Moses week after week after week. That is Jerusalem that is present to Paul at that moment, who he likens to Hagar because she's a slave. And so all the people who go to Jerusalem and listen to that law and try to live by that law are similarly children of slavery. This is Hagar. She is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and she corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is the free woman. She is our mother. Aren't you happy about that? The Jerusalem above, who we, we read in Revelation 21 about the Jerusalem that comes down to earth from heaven. The Jerusalem above, that language of new Jerusalem permeates the scripture. And Paul says that new Jerusalem wherein righteousness and holiness is going to dwell, where all God's people, all Christ's redeemed people are all going to live. This is the place where Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may also be in my Father's house. There are many dwelling places. And if it were not so, I would have told you. He's talking about this, this new Jerusalem, this new abode that's coming. Paul also talks about it here and says, that's our mom, not present day Jerusalem with its laws and its requirements that can only condemn you. New Jerusalem, the place of salvation, the place where Jesus Christ himself is king and redeemer, that's our mother. That's who's giving us our birth. We have been born again by the spirit that resides in the new Jerusalem, in the Jerusalem above. Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. And then Paul does something really curious. He launches into Isaiah 54. Why? Because Isaiah 54 and the section of it, the first verse that he quotes from Isaiah 54, seems to have no direct correlation to what he has just said about Abraham and Hagar and Sarah. If you look at Isaiah 54, 
It is right on the heels of Isaiah 53. And you should all know Isaiah 53. That is that great messianic passage in the book of Isaiah. Before Isaiah 53, Isaiah is predicting the Assyrian captivity and God's anger against and punishment of Israel. But then the promise exists that that punishment is not going to last forever. The same thing that we've been seeing in the book of Jeremiah on Wednesday nights. And how is it that these people could be so sinful, so depraved, so rebellious, so God-hating, that God would talk about divorcing them and yet say, but I'm going to restore you. And I'm going to make a kingdom out of you. And I'm going to give you your land. Something has to happen between I'm divorcing you and I'm angry at you and I'm punishing you. And I'm going to restore you, and I'm going to redeem you, and I'm going to bring you back to your land. Something has to happen. What happens? Isaiah 53. Christ shows up. Christ, the redeemer of Israel. Christ, the one who died for the diseases and the sicknesses of Israel in order to reestablish Israel. Okay, so that's the difference. Isaiah 53 sits right there at that junction between God's punishment and God's redemption And Isaiah 54 starts with this prediction, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more are the children of the desolate than the one who has a husband. Okay, so contextually in Isaiah, if you look at it and read it without knowing the Pauline application of it, what you see is, Israel, once upon a time, had a husband. God refers to himself as a husband to her. But then she's going into captivity, and she's going to be the barren woman. But the good news is, the promise from God is, even though you're the barren woman, even though you're the outcast, even though you don't have a husband anymore, you're going to be restored, you're going to be redeemed, and then the promise, you're going to be more children than the one who had a husband. In other words, how you began is nothing compared to how you're going to end. Okay, that's the Isaiah thing. Why did Paul bring that up here? Because it doesn't correspond with the Abraham and Sarah story. I think what Paul is doing is yet again demonstrating it's not just in the law, it's in the prophets. If you know the history of Israel, it's telling the same story, which is Israel failed and they couldn't cure themselves by themselves because their problem was themselves. And the cure and the redemption was a promise from God and grace from God. And that, if you continue reading through chapter 54 of Isaiah, goes off into their kingdom promises and their millennial promises and all this good stuff that's going to happen to them as a result of God making them promises, not as a result of them working in their flesh. So whether you're looking at Genesis, whether you're looking at Adam and Eve, that was my application, whether you're looking at Abraham, whether you're looking at the prophets, whether you're looking at God in his dealings with Israel, the same theology is being preached over and over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And that theology is you can't fix yourself, you can't save yourself, it has to be God who does it by grace through a promise that's always the case for it is written rejoice barren woman who does not bear break forth and shout you who are not in labor for more are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband verse 28 and you brethren oh good now he's talking directly to the church at Galatia who have been saved by a promise who are being encouraged to go back to the law. You, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. You're miraculous. It's not being accomplished through your flesh. It's not being accomplished by the law. Your salvation, your redemption, is a result of God calling you and making promises to you despite you. Now, Paul is saying that directly to 
the Galatian believers. And the evidence that they are already children of the promise is that they have already, through faith in Christ, received the Holy Spirit. And God does not make mistakes. If he deposits his Holy Spirit in you, he did that on purpose, and you are therefore redeemed for all time, despite you, despite your flesh, despite one person in this room being so full of so much shameness, despite all that. Can I pick on you more? If next week you end up going to uh, LifePoint, we'll understand. Okay. <laughs> Here's the point. All the way through the scripture, all the way through the Old Testament, what Paul refers to as the scriptures, because that's the only scripture he had extant at that time. All the way through the scripture, whether you're looking at the law, whether you're looking at the prophets, the only way that anybody gets right with God is through a promise from God, because we ourselves are always sinful. We ourselves have no righteousness that we can claim. Even our best righteousnesses are filthy rags before God. We ourselves have nothing that we can claim when we go before God. Our justification is built on nothing else than Jesus Christ and his finished work. And Jesus Christ and his finished work is the result of the promise that permeates the Old Testament. It always is the promise of God that results in the salvation of people. Consequently, Paul could say, like Isaac was a child of promise, a miraculous child, you are a miraculous child. Uh, okay, let's try this. Jen, can you believe that God would save Jeff? I mean, you, you probably know him better than anybody in the room. And yet, he is a saved individual. Can that possibly be because of something he did? Can't be. It has to be the result of a promise. It has to be the result of grace. That makes Jeff... A miracle because God supernaturally because of his own faithfulness to himself and because of his guarantee that Jesus Christ would have a people who would worship him and stand as trophies of grace through all of eternity for that reason because of those promises he made to his son he saved Jeff that's miraculous that's why Paul could say like Isaac you are children of promise. But here's a truism for you. But as at that time, back in the book of Genesis, there was trouble between the two boys, between Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael, being the older, was giving Isaac a bad time. And, of course, uh, the two women were at each other's throats. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is also now. Now, Paul's now was 2,000 years ago, but it's still true to this very day. Those who are still in bondage to the law, those who are still trying to be justified in their flesh, those who are attempting to satisfy God and then have to convince you that they are satisfying God. Look at me. Look how good and holy and right I'm being. Meanwhile, you, I thought you were a Christian, but you did something. You went to a movie, or you smoked a cigarette, or you, oh, you, but me, I'm the good one. They'll persecute you every time because you're free. And I've said it for so many weeks now, but misery does indeed love company. And being under the law is miserable because there's no end game. There's no point at which you can say, okay, I've done it. All you have is insecurity all the days of your life, hoping against hope that maybe you've done enough. But you can't ever know that. And by the way, 
That is the theology of many, many churches. That is the theology of the Catholic Church, that you can never have actual security because you never know if you're really saved until the day that you die and stand before God and he finally weighs your good and bad deeds and decides that you're good enough to come into his heaven. So you live your whole life insecure, never knowing. That's why I love the security that comes from knowing that Jesus is an absolutely complete and perfect Savior who saves completely, saves absolutely, saves fully, and therefore we can rest in the knowledge of what Christ has actually accomplished. Okay, so they're going to persecute us. That's what was happening when the Judaizers came to Galatia and were saying, you're just too free. We've spied out your liberty. You're too free. You need to keep some law. You need to be circumcised. What is Paul's response to that? But what does the scripture say? He is continuing his allegoreo. He is continuing by saying, now way back here with Abraham and Sarah, God told Abraham, do what Sarah said and throw out the bondwoman. Now, since he has gone through all the trouble of saying the bondwoman is Jerusalem, which is now, it is Mount Sinai in Arabia, it is all of the law that is being imposed on you, you need to do the same thing that God told Abraham. You need to get rid of the bondwoman and her son. You need to just throw them out. And just so that there's no ambiguity, Paul actually quotes it right from Genesis. What does the scripture say? It says, cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman will not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman. We got here last week. I closed with this last week. I'm closing with it again this week. I hope that you have a greater sense of Paul's use of allegory and how it differs from modern concepts of allegory (coughs) and how Paul utilized the actual facts of the story, didn't deny any of them, didn't change any of them, simply used them as a support for the theology that he was already preaching of salvation by grace through faith without the works of the law. He found in the scripture, and I think we can find plenty of places in the scripture, that support that theology. You don't have to change it. You don't have to make it into a bunch of symbols or allegories that you have to go chasing for in some hidden depth of wisdom that only you have. All you have to do is just read what the Bible says, and it will say the same thing over and over again. And because it keeps saying the same thing over and over again, that proves that the theology that Paul is preaching, the theology that we preach here at GCA, the only theology that saves, that is the accurate, that is the right theology, because it's all the way through the Bible, over and over again. So cast out the bondwoman, because we are not children of bondage. We are not children of the law. We're not children of Mount Sinai. We weren't even at Mount Sinai. We're Gentiles, for heaven's sake. We weren't even there to be part of that covenant when Israel said, everything God said we're going to do. We weren't there. We have been brought in to relationship with God through Jesus Christ as the result of a promise that God made to his son and then to us. Therefore, we are not children of bondage. We are children of the free. Free indeed. And if you're free, don't go back. It's so tempting. You know, last week, Micah, your brother and I were chatting. And he said to me, you know, you're right. And, and that got my interest because I, oh, really? I, I'm right? He said, you know, you're right. We really are natural born legalists. We all just want to do stuff. And he said, even though I agree with what you just said before the end of the day, I'm going to think that my relationship with God is based on what I'm doing. And I said, You get it. Do you realize? This is literally what I said to him. Do you know how few people get that? And you get it. How blessed are you? Don't go back. Because when you go back, not only are you saying, I don't need Christ. 
I don't need grace. I'm sufficient. I'll justify myself. And then you are begging God to condemn you. Or we rest in Christ utterly and completely and admit that he is a fully sufficient Savior. And we're free. And there's no going back. So the next time somebody tries to put you in bondage, you have every right to say, okay, number one, according to Paul in the book of Galatians, number one, you're perverting the gospel, you pervert. You have the right to say that. And then you have the right to say, get out. I want nothing more to do with you. Get out. You clearly don't know my Savior. My Savior saved. you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.